Welcome everybody to the Wine and Politics Podcast, where we bring two people with differing perspectives on the political spectrum together and try to find common ground. But you have to be drinking wine. (laughs) It makes these conversations a lot easier, a lot more loose, and uh, hopefully we get to have fun with it. So what you're about to hear is my first ever episode, which I recorded with my dad, Bob Genevine, who has been involved in politics as well as the law community within Dallas for 40 years or so. And you'll hear us in this episode refer to the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade. We did record this episode before this ruling had been decided officially. So just as a heads up, if you hear us talk about that, that's why. But anyways, please listen. Please provide feedback. If you like it, give us five stars. If you don't, let me know how, you know, maybe we can improve and please share it with a friend. That being said, thank y'all so much for listening and supporting this podcast. Enjoy. What's up, Dallas and the rest of the world? Because you could listen to this podcast anywhere. Uh, my name is Jane Marie Barnes, and this is the new and improved Wine and Politics Podcast, formerly known as the Uncanceled Podcast. We changed formats, and now we are interviewing people and having conversations with some really awesome, smart individuals, all while drinking alcohol. <laughs> Usually it's wine, but today we are drinking Bloody Marys. Cheers. Cheers. That's pretty good. Nicely done. Thank you. you can thank Tabasco Bloody Mary Mix for that. I love that. <laughs> okay, so my first guest on our very first episode of this podcast is Bob Genevine. Thank you. Also known as my dad. And Bob, can I call you Bob on this? That probably works. <laughs> he is a former judge and political fundraiser, now a top lawyer in Dallas and mediator, and has been involved in politics for the last 40 years? That's about right. I hate to admit it. You know what? You probably have a lot of really great nuggets of information. I'm sure you have some stories. Oh, one great political moment can I share? Yeah. 1984 Republican convention was in Dallas. That's the year we renominated Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. riding a high wave of patriotism. Um, I volunteered and was assigned to the ecumenical prayer breakfast on Saturday morning. That was uh, a an appearance by the president and the vice president in front of a choir made up of Uh, dozens of choirs from the area Uh, a gospel singer it was fantastic my job after having gotten complete security clearance with the secret service was to stand under the stage and cue the president the vice president and both of their wives what to hail to the chief i had a walkie-talkie and when i was told go i told them to go Uh, but before that it was just the five of us you and the president, the vice president, and their wives? That's right. My gosh. The, the closest Secret Service guy was about 20 yards away. And if w- that moment lasted for probably 45 seconds to a minute. Um, but in that time, I can tell you, those are some nice people. The one that stood out was Barbara Bush. She was, Really? At that moment, in, in the presence of such royalty, she was interested in me and what I was doing and where I'd gone to school and what I was going to do after the convention. 
it was it was special. That is so cool. You commanded the presence of literally. I told him what to do. <laughs> And I'm not even sure I said anything. I just used my finger to point. That's even of, better. And and when I pointed, he jumped. So he did his jumped. vice president. So basically, you asked him to jump, and he said, how high? Basically. And then you never looked back. Then you were into politics forever. Yeah, but by that time, how could you go back? 100%. That's actually a really good segue into our first uh, topic, though, because you know you started working on the Reagan campaign, and obviously Ronald Reagan was a big, had a big role to play in the Cold War. And the fall of the Berlin Wall happened under his watch. And so when it comes to this certain time period of the Russia and Ukraine conflict, I'm sure that's probably, you know, you have a little bit more familiarity with that just based on where your political journey started. Oh, that's true. Anybody that was alive back then remembers well the collapsing of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. And then the collapse of the Soviet Union under the uh, leadership of Mikhail Gorbachev, who was really not perceived, at least at the time, and I think still, not perceived as any kind of a tyrant, mm-hmm. like, you, like you might say Stalin was perceived as, mm-hmm. um, or even Khrushchev. Um, and now, certainly, we have a new tyrant in the ranks, in mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin. But Mikhail Gorbachev was not perceived that way. He was perceived as a guy who was committed to his country, who loved his country, and who hated to see it fall. Yeah. But, but he recognized that they were overextended, and they could not keep the Soviet Union together. Yeah. That's really interesting because I don't think we ever really hear much about, you know, what the context was around the Cold War at this day and age and like who Mikhail Gorbachev was and who he was compared to Putin, who you mentioned earlier. Um, and like the role that maybe the fall of the Cold or the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the USSR, how that played on the world stage, you know, in future years and generations. Well, even then, um, even as the USSR, the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia was still regarded, highly mm-hmm. regarded and respected as a feared, powerful nuclear power. Yeah. Um, and that never changed. In fact, I'm sure that perception only deepened even even till now. Uh, well, not quite now, but up until the invasion of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having watched how the Russian army has fared, and they have fared poorly against the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian civilians and volunteers from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Russia is, golly, um, militarily destroyed, I think. Yeah. All they really have left is the red button. And that's something you have to take seriously. In fact, it's, it's pretty worrisome <clears throat> when you think of the wall that Vladimir Putin is backed up against. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think he has any good options. Um, and, and I know the whole world is a little concerned about whether he is mentally stable. Right. I know that's been that's been coming up in conversations like ever since there was a little bit more of a sh- an unanticipated struggle for the Russian military than expected. Everyone's kind of started talking about like, well, is he stable? Like, is this kind of his last hurrah? Is this his big, you know, going out with a bang type of an action? What are your thoughts there? If he wants to go out with a bang, I think he only has one option. Yeah. And I don't claim to be a, 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 an expert on the topic, but everybody agrees. All the yeah. experts say the same thing. His military has been decimated. He may have lost a third of his entire military. After something he thought was going to be taken so easily. Can you imagine? God, talk about misinformation. Yeah. And that's a good reason not to hire yes men. Yeah. <laughs> because when you want to do something that actually involves some risk, you better be surrounded by people who will shoot straight with you mm-hmm. and, and, and listen to them instead of shooting them. Yeah. But but he is now. What cards does he have to play? His 
his military can't accomplish the objectives on the battlefield that they try to accomplish. They, mm. I think in the last week, they attempted to encircle some Ukrainian troops, and they thought they had an opportunity to do that, and they got crushed. Really? By the Ukrainians, who, who now are very well armed. Yeah. Um, you worry a little bit about those arms, the, the bombs themselves running out. I haven't heard any reports of that, but as long as they have bombs, they are just beating mm-hmm. the Russians mercilessly. Didn't Biden come out and say that they're sending like longer range missiles and weapons to the Ukrainian I think army? It's longer range artillery, okay, to match the range that the Russians have. Wow! And that means that the, we will be able to take out the Russian artillery. We, I shouldn't say that. The Ukrainians, of course, <laughs> we're not there. We're not directly, you know, in this fight. As far as we know. <laughs> no, of course, we don't have any reason to believe that we are. But um, if the if the Ukrainians can use the, that new long-range artillery to take out the Russian artillery, I'm not sure what the Russians have left. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think if they try to retreat, they'll get pummeled. Mm-hmm. And, and even maybe after they cross the border, they'll be pummeled. Yeah. So back to what our point, that's worrisome because... If Putin's only way to grab any kind of victory is to push the red button, uh, that's that's pretty terrifying. Yeah. I don't feel like he will. You know, I do feel like he, you know, talks about his loyalty to the motherland. And, you know, after doing my research on him, and I do want to go back to his background in a minute. I don't know that he's that unstable to just decimate everyone and everything and make this go nuclear. We all hope not. I really don't think he is. I feel like he's almost started to, like wean a little bit and we keep hearing that the only way that this conflict is going to be resolved is through negotiations which makes me think okay maybe the guy is being a little bit more reasonable understanding maybe this was a really bad idea he, he must have come to that conclusion by now don't you think if it didn't happen as quickly as he expected it to i mean didn't he think he was going to take ukraine in a matter of hours yeah three days i think i heard 80 hours okay something crazy yeah and it's taken months, so it's still going on. The Ukrainians are still putting up a fight. Like, this is actually taking more of a toll on his army, what he wants to do, his initiatives for the future anyway. So maybe he is thinking long-term. And the guy is, I mean, like, a pretty calculated dude. You know, I was I was doing some research on him before this podcast, and we all know he's former KGB. He was KGB for, like, 15 years. And then he was the head of the FSB, which is like the domestic arm of the KGB. Like the guy knows how to mobilize, uh, you know, operations and make them successful. And he is ambitious and driven. I mean, the guy has literally been president, uh, what, in the early 2000s and then became prime minister and then became president again. And now has figured out a way to stay president forever. Exactly. But but what does he do? Does I mean, and, and you may know more about Putin than I do. What does he do if not push the red button? Put his tail between his legs and shrink back across the border and attempt to rejoin the international community? I, I don't see that he has that as an option. I think he's a pariah. No, I think he's a pariah, but I do think that probably means they'll be more dependent on China. And that alliance right there is going to get stronger, I think. Well, that's an interesting question, too, because if you're China and you right before, do you recall, Jay Marie, that right before the invasion of Ukraine, Russia and China lifted a glass and toasted their alliance, mm-hmm. two of the world's greatest democracies. Yeah, no. And, and you had to think, OK, I, I, I can see that China thinks we're, we're drawing an alliance with a very powerful military. Because mm-hmm. that's what everybody thought. Yeah. It didn't work out. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. What China thinks they can get from Russia now. I think a lot of it 
after like doing my research and stuff, honestly, a lot of it is petrol, like energy. I mean, because China has been so dependent on coal for so long that getting oil and natural gas exported or imported from Russia is a very big part of their economy. I think it's like 35% of the whatever they export or import in from Russia is oil. I mean, especially with how many people China has, the pollution problem that they have, like that is still a necessity. But China, to your point, has started building up its own military arsenal. You know? Oh, absolutely. And their technology is nuts. I was even reading that Russia has been asking China to supply them with like higher tech military grade drones, which is real weird and freaky, right? I wonder if China's going to do that. I mean, that, that would, I'm not sure China would want to do that. And I think they've been warned not to do that or they'll be the subject of international sanctions like Russia. Yep. Well, and I think that brings us into the next part of this topic we wanted to discuss is, you know, what does this mean for China in the future? almost drawing parallels to the Ukraine. I mean, I don't want to say the way that the Russians bombed the Ukraine invasion. I mean, that like actually figuratively, like they completely (laughs) screwed it up. But like China says that they're not drawing parallels between their relationship with Taiwan and Russia's relationship with Ukraine because in the People's Republic of China's eyes, Taiwan is already a part of China. Right. Whereas Ukraine, they were kind of being mealy-mouthed about it and saying, well, you know, it's an independent nation. So it's not the same because Taiwan. Because Taiwan's not an independent nation. Right. Yeah, that's a, I think that's kind of a tough sale, but you're right. That's exactly what they're saying, and they're saying it proudly. Mm-hmm. They're saying, we have no flexibility here. Yep. Uh, when, when, when Biden talked tough, I think Biden said, you know, we would commit the American military to that conflict if, if China invades Taiwan. He was, un, he, he was unambiguous. And just a few minutes after he made that statement, the White House tried to walk it back. Uh, but before they did, China reacted to say, there is no flexibility in our commitment to rejoin to the reunification of China, which mm-hmm. means the invasion they of They have a, absolute plans to do that. They are not making any bones about it. Yeah. They've been very clear. Yeah. So, but, but I, I think... Even though they will try to draw a distinction between their relationship with Taiwan and Russia's relationship with Ukraine, it's still one military offensive to the west and a different military offensive to the Mm -hmm. south and east. Uh, And the United States opposes both of those. Mm -hmm. Without committing a single boot to the ground, the Western world has stopped Russia's attempt. Yeah. The Western world, including Japan, has said... We will lift a finger. We will defend Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Boy, that would be a hell of a conflict if they tried that right now. Yeah. Now that we're sort of assuming that the United States will do what it says it will do. I feel like Taiwan is more of an asset to us than Ukraine is, you know? Oh, for sure. Because, like, it is the, I mean, the Western democracy of the East and in a way. Right. And if, if, if I mean, you, you got to, if you just look at the map and you assume that China controls Taiwan, that puts China in, tr- in charge of a whole region mm-hmm. of, of the Pacific Ocean. And doesn't Xi Jinping say that they lay like, claim to the South China Sea? Oh, yeah. 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 It's actually really funny. So doing you know some preparation for this podcast, not funny. It's an interesting um, parallels that, were also being, that I also saw drawn between Putin and Xi Jinping. So um, they're both obviously tyrants. But did you know they're both trying to scrap term limits for presidents? So yeah. that Xi Jinping can be president and chairman of china forever just like putin will be of course oh my gosh power corrupts yeah absolute power corrupts absolutely and they both went on political sprees trying to jail and 
quash their opposition. You know, they've had political prisoners in the tens of thousands on both sides. Putin has done that to his opposition. Xi Jinping's done that to his. Putin's jails have to be full by now. I know. I literally read that, like, maybe Xi Jinping had imprisoned or punished, it was the word, like, a million political opponents. High and low. Tigers and flies is what they called it. Wow. Yeah. And to even make it a little bit creepier, his ideology of having this, like, socialist economy and society with Chinese values, quote-unquote, has been enshrined in their constitution. And uh, the article I was reading said that, like, the only other leader, Chinese leader, that had that same honor, quote-unquote, was Mao Zedong. So Xi Jinping is supposed to be this, like, prodigy of a leader who's going to lead China into being the world's biggest superpower. No doubt that is their mission. Yeah. And, and um, well, as you know, um, we have seen that up close and personal. We know what mm-hmm. kind of control the Chinese Communist Party exerts, not just over government, but over business, too. It goes to your point that Xi Jinping is consolidating power on all levels, mm-hmm. governmental, business, etc. Uh, that is a country he intends to run with a tight fist. Yep. And the crazy thing about the way that China operates is they play the long game. You know, oh, with, absolutely. You know, you, I learned in, you know, in school that they're, the way that they view history is actually circular. You know, it's almost like cyclical. That's the word I was supposed to use. Um, you know, so they measure history based on the dynasties and the basically, you know, the circle of life for those dynasties were, you know, rebels rise up against a corrupt power and then they become the dominant dynasty and then they rule for however many hundred years and then they get corrupted because, like you said earlier, power, you know, unabridged leads to corruption and then the cycle just starts all over again. Right. And so Mao Zedong had like a 100-year plan to make sure that China became the superpower of the world and I think Xi Jinping is working to make that a reality faster. You, you, you should have no doubt that that's what he's trying to do. Yeah, 100%. And so it's really interesting, too, because I think coming back to this Russia and Ukraine conflict and what that means for China, this was the very first civilized conflict that we've seen in the modern world since 1945, since the end of World War II. Exactly. You know, and so when you're seeing the difficulty in which it actually does take to conquer a a nation like you would have been able to more easily do in the past, I think that signals to China, okay, we're not going to be able to accomplish our goals or even conquer Taiwan using just artillery and military you know, means. It's going to be an information war. It's going to be a lot of misinformation, propaganda spread, and cyber attacks. I mean, we've seen that already. China has gone in and you know, hacked all these different like, insurance companies in the U.S. and had like, all these different data leaks that really are compromising. And I think that's the way that they're going to go about it. It'll be sneaky. And before we know it, it'll just like we'll open our eyes and it'll be a completely different world overnight. You know, that's a good point. And if they had not expected to commit a total effort, they will now. Yeah. They, they now realize it will be more difficult than they thought. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody suspects that their reaction to that will be, well, maybe we shouldn't do this. Yeah. Their reaction instead will be, we need to do this with more effort, mm-hmm. with a more comprehensive... And we need to do this correctly. We need to think it out. And I think they'll be sitting on their hands. They're going to start understanding the lessons and you know learnings from the Russia-Ukraine conflict and apply that to the way that they approach Taiwan. But do you think that they can wait very long? I mean, I think they look at the current American government and they think soft. Yeah. And, and there's a good chance that the next president won't be a Democrat. Yep. 
and it'll be somebody who is much more committed to stopping China. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think it needs to be before 2024 that they make their move, but I don't think they can get it done before November 2022. I don't think they can. Before November 22 or 24? 2022. Because like Congress is going to have a red wave. I mean, we all know that. Yeah, I don't think they're as worried about the change in Congress. They're yeah. more worried about the change at the top. Yeah. I, I think. I mean, who am I to know? But but if I were the Chinese, I wouldn't be so worried about that. Yeah. If the Republicans take the Senate and the House, that might be good, frankly, mm-hmm. because it creates a, a government that might be deadlocked yep. and incapable of doing anything. And it has no effect. It doesn't strengthen the commander-in-chief. Yeah. It may even undermine the commander-in-chief a little bit. Oh, I make him weaker. Sure. I mean, if he doesn't have a Democrat Congress, that's harder for him. I feel like he's already been like stumbling over himself, though, even with the Democrat Congress. And I guess this is honestly a good segue into just talking about Biden as a president, because I know that was another topic we wanted to go over. Is Joe Biden the president? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, we all know he holds the office, but I don't. And you know, Jamie, that I'm a pretty committed Republican. I don't yeah. make any apologies about that. It's not a Republican glee that I feel when I look at our president stumble around. Yeah. It's it's a sadness. I think a lot of people share that. Probably the majority of Republicans well, I share so that. I, I mean, I, sure, there's some silly people who just, who, who love to see him and giggle when he trips on the stairs three times walking up to the plane. Yeah. Um, but but really, that, that's it's not funny. It's it's terribly sad, mm-hmm. and I, I I don't understand, frankly, why his family, and specifically his wife, allows this to go on, yeah. unless unless Dr. Biden is terrified of Kamala Harris the way everybody else is. I mean, if there was if there was a credible vice president, mm-hmm. I don't mean that to sound like a Republican judgment. The Democrats don't like Kamala. Yeah, she's got like a lower approval rating than Biden does. And she was like, I think the first presidential candidate to drop out of the race. Yeah. I'm not sure she won a single delegate. Mm -mm. Um, Well, you just see her talk and you watch her and she stumbles over her words. But she's she's all there. She's like she's a competent, coherent person. But she still stumbles over her words because she doesn't know what she's doing. I think the Democrats would not completely. Uh, uh, of course, in public, they would disagree with you and they would say that's racist of you for saying that. But they, I don't think privately the Democrats don't. I think they recognize they have a problem. Yep. And if they had a credible vice president, um, I'm not sure Joe Biden would still be the president. Yep. I think you're probably right about that because everyone talks, I mean, especially at the very beginning of his presidency when it was clear he ran as a moderate and then pushed completely progressive mm-hmm. and radical and extreme on, on the left. I think a lot of people started talking about, well, he's just not of sound mind. He's not running the country. We should invoke the, what is it, the 25th Amendment? Right. And, you know, impeach him and, you know, unseat him. But the alternative to your point isn't better. It's really, it's not. Right. I think that's why he's still there. But but we started this conversation with the question, who is the president? We're in this terribly vulnerable position as a nation where the guy who takes responsibility for the administration's failures, namely Joe Biden, mm-hmm. is not the guy making the choices mm-hmm. about what direction the country goes. There is somebody else or maybe a group of people who are making decisions about where Joe Biden goes and what Joe Biden says, mm-hmm. whoever it is that writes what he reads on the teleprompter, 
That's the person who's actually the president of the United States. Right. But that person's not accountable to anybody. I actually read a report that Biden had privately complained about the state of the economy. And in his complaint, he was upset and frustrated that his aides weren't doing more or to solve the problem. To help the economy. Yes. Which one tells you the guy's not taking accountability. Like he said, what did he say? The buck stops with me whenever he was campaigning. And that was like his tagline. And then he would disappear from the public eye and then he'd say trump sucks the buck stops with me he doesn't take accountability biden's not taking accountability either but to your point maybe because it's not his decisions he's upset and frustrated because he's looking bad and he can't make it like he can't make a decision so his aides are the ones who are deciding policy uh, that's for sure and, and and someday we may know who, who that is because somebody's got a hell of a story to tell yeah but for for now I really look to Dr. Jill Biden mm -hmm. because this is her husband and she's an accomplice. Who was the previous president whose wife was really doing the policy making and running the country behind the scenes? Are you thinking of Delano, uh, Franklin Delano yep. Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt? Yes. The, even that was nothing like what we have here. Yeah. I mean, Franklin was, was not well and died in office. Yeah. Um, but the last time he was elected, and I don't want to lie about this, was that 1938? Maybe 1940, sorry. That election wasn't marred by concerns over his mental stability. Yeah. Even if, if those concerns cropped up later. And frankly, they cropped up with Ronald Reagan at the end of his second term. In, in the case of Ronald Reagan, there was no suggestion that it was Nancy, mm -hmm. his wife, who was running the country. Do you think it's Joe Biden? I don't know if it is. I think it's got to be a group of people, and she has a voice at the table. Yeah, you're probably right about that. I think it's Obama term three. It could be. It could be. Golly, those pictures at the White House. Mm -hmm. Those videos. When, when oh, my there. gosh. Speaking about Biden's presidency, like, you know, you don't have any power or influence when there's actually video footage of you looking around to or figure out to who to. to talk to. And no one. No one. They're ignoring you. They're ignoring you. You're the president of the United States, supposedly, and nobody wants to get your attention. If you're the president of the United States, you're not supposed to have to put your hand on the shoulder of someone in front of you and to try to get them to turn around and talk to you. Yeah. Not when you're the president of the United States. No. Oh, my heavens. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was, to me, shocking. It's just such a an indicator of where the power lies. Because everyone was honestly kind of crowding around Obama. Mm -hmm. And, Absolutely. you know, he's definitely puppeteering everything behind the scenes, in my opinion. You know? And I think being able to push a lot more radical you know, policy and agenda through Biden probably does him a lot of favors because everyone loved Obama when he started. He kind of acted like he was this moderate, I'm going to bring the country together type of president who had a very eloquent way of delivering messaging. But at the end of the day, he was absolutely radical. And I think by the end of his presidency, everybody would agree with you on that. But now he can get away with pushing radical stuff and, um, you know, radical policy behind the scenes so he's not getting the flack for any of it like he's not the one dividing the country biden is even though biden ran on being a great unifier you know he's everyone's president nope when you're calling half the country racist half the country oh yeah racist extremists and you know what makes me super sick about biden specifically and his whole administration is how they capitalize on like really upsetting tragedies i know we're not talking about guns and gun control in in this episode but everything that happened with uvalde i mean i just felt like all of a sudden they were politicizing it and using it as a way to push an agenda and they did it same with the buffalo shooting 
and they continue to do it and capitalizing and exploiting really sad things that happen to people for political gain. And then they alienate and demonize half the country who does just believe in what they believe and have their values. Like you're not being a like a uniter. You're not bringing the country together when you're calling half of us pigs and bigots. Oh, that, that that's certainly true. And you're right about using that tragedy, that terrible tragedy for political gain. Did you, did you see, I'm sure you did, the, the video from the Greg Abbott, Governor Abbott press yeah. conference? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Interrupted by yes. um, uh, Mr. Beto O'Rourke. O'Rourke. Um, what, what struck me and what I think most people will remember from that was the, the reaction of the mayor of Uvalde, mm-hmm. whose reaction was probably not even civil. Yep. He was so angry that that Mr. O'Rourke had tried to use that as a political opportunity. Yep. Um, that, but that's exactly what you're talking about. Um, and and that, that goes all the way up to the presidency mm-hmm. and everywhere else. I mean, every Democrat I know uh, is trying to make a big deal out of that. Mm-hmm. We, we have to have gun control now, but like you said, this isn't a gun control segment. We can have that conversation on another episode. To that. <laughs> no, but just going back to Biden, it's just really upsetting because I feel like, you know, you sort of make the cultural impact of politics at the top. And whatever the president's saying, and honestly, I feel like Trump kind of did that too, where he he spoke very divisively. And, you know, I'm a Trump supporter. I voted for him. And I think he, the country was in a better place when he was president. But, you know, he had some divisive language that he set on fire also. And I just think if it starts at the top, that's what trickles down. And now we're at a point in our country where we're so divided on everything. And it, it gets ugly. Oh, it gets ugly all the time. Yeah. Um. I, I, I try to watch some of what happens on the other side, mm-hmm. on, the, on the left side of the aisle, because I don't want to be in an echo chamber. And I know that people will accuse even us right now of being in an echo chamber. I try hard. I really do mm-hmm. to see the other side. So, I've, I mean, there are times when I've watched se- segments of The View. Uh-huh. Every time I do, I, I, every time I think to myself, wow, is there a way to bring this country back together? And I'm not sure there is. Yeah. I think the problem now is when the media figured it out with Trump. When you have a narrative that is negative and divisive and um, inflammatory, you get ratings. And right now, CNN's viewership, as an example, is lower than what like the Daily Wire viewership is on a daily basis, which is actually like the Daily Wire isn't even on cable news. CNN's viewership is just on the decline and they're figuring out how can we save our business. And at the same time, you know, trying to find a villain. And but but they've been doing that. I mean, I, yeah. This is this is not my you know media ratings and media economics is not my expertise. But I've 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 had this conversation with others before. Shouldn't they figure out how to make money? They've been doing the same thing. They've yeah. Been puppeting that or, or parroting all that divisive stuff, really, as the the Democrat media arm mm-hmm. for years. Yeah. Maybe decades. And people are just now waking up to it, you think? Well, I think their ratings keep going down. I mean, I, I don't think – they're not doing it to make money. If, if their primary objective was to make money – and you know, I apologize to all those CNN stockholders out there. Mm-hmm. But if their objective is to make money, they're not doing it. Yeah. And I don't think that's really their objective. I think their objective is political. Like they're just a, the propaganda arm of the government, the Democrat Party. Well, they certainly are that. Um, whether they would admit it or not, I don't know. If, if you have a – of another speaker down the line that comes from a different ideology. I'd love you to ask that. Mm-hmm. I, 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 there's so many questions I'd love to hear their answer to. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm, that's the whole point of this podcast is I want to bring people from both sides of the aisle together and hopefully find common ground, you know, cause we all at the end of the day are humans and we all very much believe what we believe. And the point of democracy is to honestly have a debate about it. I don't know. I just feel like that's the way that public discourse should go. And it's not right now. You know, maybe you can do that, Jay Marie. Maybe you can have a, interviews with, with, with people who think like I do, interviews with people who think another way. Maybe you can put us together, um, two, yeah. two, two different voices on one podcast. Yeah. Um, I think if you, if you can pull that off, you'd be doing something no one else is able to do. Uh, that's my goal. That's my goal. It's a lofty goal, girl. Way to go. That's why this podcast is called Wine and Politics, because <laughs> you need alcohol to do that. <laughs> no, but to kind of round out with Biden, because I also want to get to our next topic about Roe. I just, it's really sad to me, and I think our country on the global stage, kind of tying it back even to Russia and what we're perceived as, uh, as a nation, is really sad you know, the Saudi Arabian SNL or version of SNL like made fun of Biden. Oh, gosh. And when you have that going on, I know, you know, it's funny, but the darker underlying current uh, and subliminal messaging there is people don't take us seriously anymore. We're talking about abortion. And honestly, did you know our abortion policies in the United States match what North Korea and China's are? Do you know it's actually much more strict to get an abortion when you're in Europe? Like the abortion policies oh, there believe, are much more strict. I believe that. I mean, you're you're talking. You say abortion policies, and you must be talking about the st- the laws that some states have enacted permitting abortion. I'm talking, yeah, like full term abortions yeah. or post term abortions. The more that we talk about Roe v. Wade, and the more that the abortion conversation is brought into the spotlight. Now that we're kind of on this last topic, I feel more and more strongly in my position of being pro life. Because if you follow the pro-choice argument to its logical conclusion, you basically have to admit that you're pro-choice because you want the freedom to do whatever the F you want. And it doesn't matter if you kill your baby at the end of the day. If, if you don't want to be a mom, you shouldn't have to be a mom. Can I say something about Roe? Yeah. It, it may be that, that a majority of the justices on the Supreme Court think that abortion should not be permitted. It may be, but that is not the 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 ruling in this case that may overturn Roe. Mm-hmm. It's not really fair to say that that is a pro-life decision. And, yeah. he, and, and here's why. All Roe did, all Roe versus Wade did was say, this is not a matter that state legislatures are free to pass laws about. This is a matter that's limited. And they pretended like they could find that somewhere in the United States Constitution. Mm-hmm. That's what liberal justices do. They make crap up, yeah, because they want to achieve a certain result. But the Supreme Court's not supposed to be a legislative body, and that's what was wrong with Roe versus Wade, and that was a Texas case. Yeah, that. Do you know Dallas County? It was. Henry Wade was our district attorney. Yeah. Um, His son and daughter-in-law were in politics with me when I was a judge. Whoa! Talk about a a crazy like. Full circle so they're, they're moment. A, they're a little <laughs> Wade people about your age now who can tell their friends in you know that Roe versus Wade, that was my grandfather. That's so, so that's crazy. Really cool. But Texas had a law that says you couldn't have an abortion. That was a law passed by the Texas legislature. Mm-hmm. Said it was a crime. Yeah. That was, the legislature by definition reflects the democratic will of mm-hmm. the majority. By definition. All the Supreme Court did was say, 
on this topic, you can't pass that law, Texas, because if we look at the, I think it was the Ninth Amendment of the Constitution, we think we find a right to privacy, even though it doesn't say that. And we also think that a right to privacy means you can have an abortion, even though yeah. that doesn't say that. I think the liberty wording in the due process clause was what they were alluding to also meaning the right to privacy. Either way. The, yeah. the, the point is you can't find the phrase right to privacy right. in the Constitution, and you sure can't find the word abortion. Yep. Um, so... So I, I think we're overselling oh, what, what the Supreme Court said. Yeah. All the Supreme Court said is this matter, this very controversial matter of abortion is a matter that is not reserved to the federal government in the Constitution. It's just yeah. not. So you people take your concerns to your legislature and you pass the laws that you think you ought to pass. That's very pro-democracy. Yep. So skip ahead to this. I don't want to, I'm not trying to duck the fight. The fight is... The, the well, I think is. I think you're correct in in outlining what the what the Roe v. Wade, you know, summary of judgment was and what that decision looked like, and that's over here. Right. And the abortion debate specifically is over here. That's right. There's two different debates. Yes. Exactly right. But I think you're right to call that out because it's very easy for people to get them, com like to combine that's them right. and get them convoluted. Oh, they all, they do it all the time. Yeah. And, and that, I do think it's worth separating. So, so let's not dodge the bullet. Let's talk about the more difficult issue of abortion. Mm -hmm. My wife and I went to a, a restaurant for lunch yesterday, and we couldn't help but notice a, a tiny baby looked like a newborn Aww. at the table next to us. And as we left, there was a mother and her parents at the table, and the, her father, the baby's grandfather, obviously, hollered at us and said, hey, y'all were looking at this baby. You want to buy it? <laughs> He was being funny, of course. <laughs> but wait, it caused us to go over there and talk to him. Well, yeah. this, this baby was born two months premature. What? The baby was born two months premature and was now three months old. So had like would have been like a month old newborn if That's right. they had been if it had been born on time. That's exactly right. But but I'm thinking to myself, my gosh, I'm looking at this little human being that's functional, mm -hmm. that's nuzzling his mother, that's looking around, that's, yeah. that's clenching her sleeve uh and was otherwise you know pretty well behaved um and thinking wow just a month ago there are people who would have said it's okay to kill that yeah man. so look I, let me take this from a nonpartisan view let me try that's what we're here to do most people um and i'd love to have this discussion yeah with somebody who disagrees with it but, but i think most people would say at least until the last six months, everybody would have agreed if, if it's human life, it's protected. Yeah. And the question was, when does it become human life? And someone who was pro-choice would say, it does not become a human life at conception. It becomes a human life at some later time. I actually disagree with you on that. I think most people would say it's a human life as soon as the conception happens, but the, the language that they use to justify abortion is viability. Because you can, I mean, it doesn't even need to be a, a conversation about faith. You can, everything, everybody can agree at the moment of conception, the egg gets fertilized. That DNA is not the mother's. That DNA is different. It becomes something different. It's not your DNA to do with what you want. Well, the people, though, Jay Marie, who say it's okay to abort that fetus, say it's a part of the woman's body. That's what you hear all the time. My yeah. body, my choice. I, I just think that's factually wrong, you know, and you don't need a, an argument on religion to make that. 
Yeah, I'm not trying to get religious about it. Yeah, and I don't think we should on this podcast either. Just because I think a lot of people who are pro-choice tend to be a little bit more, uh, less strong in their faith or a little bit more agnostic. So if you're going to have that argument within the same language group that the pro-choice people use, I feel like it's incorrect to say it's your body because it's not. You won't get anybody on the other side to concede that. They will say it's my body, it's my choice. They used to say, it's my body until it's born. Yeah. They kind of backed away from that even. They used to say, it's my body until it's viable. Mm -hmm. But when I talk about human life, I'm talking about whenever, whoever you are, whatever your point of view is, at some point, at what point, at some point, this thing becomes its own human life. Mm -hmm. I think most people would have said, we can argue about when that begins, but when that begins, then it's protectable. Now, the question of when human life begins seems to get thrown under the rug a little bit mm-hmm. by, by people who are pro-choice. Yep. I think that's dangerous. I mean, I will, I will tell you this. I have not heard any Democrat in Congress, and they all voted for full-term abortion. I haven't heard a single one of them defend that on any basis that doesn't assume it's a part of the woman's body. Because all they say is, it's not our place to, to make decisions for the woman about her body. But I feel like that's just a mealy-mouthed argument. I think it's an easy way out. And that's, you know... Aren't it, you supposed to be the moderator here? You're supposed to be nice. <laughs> You're being my moderator. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll be the moderator for a minute. <laughs> okay, great. I mean, I do want to, you know showcase you know what play devil's advocate and understand what the other side says and i think to your point saying pro-choice saying it's my body my choice like saying i as a woman want to be able to have the freedoms and the liberties that men do and work and you know travel and have all these things that i can go do that don't keep me at home don't keep me in this like um you know anti-feminist bubble because that's really where this all stemmed from was the feminist movement when women were able to join the workforce you know, it was something they had to choose between a family or work. And so when you're talking about abortion, it's a way for women to almost time when they want to have a family. Right. Um, unfortunately our biology and the way that women and men are wired is different. And when you talk about things like, Oh my God, wait, are you saying men can't have children? (laughs) You didn't tell me you were one of those crazy radical people, Jay Marie. I'm trying to be the mediator, moderator here, okay? <laughs> I'm trying my best. But no, my point is when men and women are biologically different, and especially when it comes to how they're wired. And when you're talking about having casual romantic relationships, the woman biologically and psychologically always has to think a little bit harder about those decisions because there is a major commitment involved at the end of the day. And that's literally the way that God made us because we are the ones who are going to be pregnant and carrying a child and then responsible for that child when they're born. And so being pro-choice, I feel like is a way to kind of have like your get out of jail free card when it comes to that and do whatever you want. And women and men should be free spirited and it shouldn't matter. But at the end of the day, that's just not how it works. And I used to be pro-choice. You know, I didn't have do a lot of research, but I think the idea that women should be allowed to do what they want with their bodies, take abortion out of it, is 100% the right decision. But when you look at abortion specifically, the more that I researched it, the more pro-life I got. And 
you know, there have been stories I've read and interviews and testimonials that I've read or watched of former abortionists. And um, there's this one story by Dr. Steve Hammond, and he said he was an abortionist, had performed hundreds of abortions, and the last abortion he ever performed was on a 16-year-old girl. And his clinic had a policy that he wouldn't abort past a certain uh, time frame. It was like an X amount of weeks. Right. And once the procedure started, he realized the child was way farther along than he had originally been informed. And he said the reason he's never performed one since is because while he was doing it, it was too late to stop. The baby kicked him. Kicked him. And when you hear stories like that, it's unimaginable to think that it's just about a woman's body. The baby kicked him. The baby was a Republican. (laughs) (laughs) But the baby was pro-life. I mean, not to make a joke out of it, but like that is why this whole... The baby was fighting for its life. Yes. And when you hear different testimonials, I think Dr. Ben Carson has um, an article out on what happens during an abortion, and it's disgusting. And I don't even want to go into it right now because it's going to make me cry. But... When you do your research, and I think this is the biggest difference between people who tend to lean left or right, especially when they're figuring out what their opinions are for themselves. Like, obviously, I grew up Republican. You and mom have been conservative and Republican my whole life. So I already had that sense, that that set of values instilled in me. But when I was doing my own research and learning, oh, okay, what's actually the argument here? What's actually behind all of this? You learn that it's like horrifying what happens to those children. And, you know, you get arguments and this is literally me going on my soapbox because, again, I'm not doing a very good job being a moderator today. But when people talk about, well, you know, I think there was some case, was it there was some other Supreme Court case talking about how, well, you know, an abortion shouldn't be prohibited for a woman who would have it would have an undue burden on. And I think using that argument to justify having an abortion, saying, well, I'm not going to be able to provide for my baby. I don't you know, want my baby to go into the foster care system. I just feel like that's uh, – Michael Knowles actually makes this point. If you follow that argument to its logical conclusion, you're basically saying, well, then people who are impoverished and poor should just not exist either because their life is hard. So you're saying if your baby's life is going to be hard, then it's not worth letting it live. And I think in that same vein, when you talk about your options, if you don't want a kid and you get pregnant, there's, you know, like tens and tens of couples ready to adopt for every one abortion that happens in the United States. So, right. And again, Europe has even stricter abortion laws. So I don't understand why everyone thinks we're being so progressive. Europe is much more progressive as an as a society than than the U.S. is, in in my opinion. Well, there's at some point along the way, there was this crazy choice made by the progressives that they were going to advocate on behalf of the chi- of the mother and not on behalf of the child. Yeah. Why? Why that child can't speak for itself? Why? I, yeah. I don't understand that at all. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. But I think coming back to your original point about Roe v. Wade, I think there there's a lot of hate and divisiveness associated with it that is misdirected because to your point roe v wade isn't talking about you know outlawing abortions throughout the land right that's exactly right you know at some point i hope that that does become the case because you are talking about human life and you know even if you start with things as simple as the texas heartbeat bill you know it's what six weeks or something and you can't get an abortion after that roe v wade is the first step but people it, it should not get the amount of um 
divisive politicization that it is getting. And I think even Jane Roe, I think I forget her last name. It was something McCorvey. She came out like 20 years later and said that she became pro-life or something. Um, The last thing I want to say about just abortions in general is I think that the majority of Americans would probably say they're pro-choice. But I also think the majority of Americans would say that they don't support full-term abortions. I think that's right. So, like, why does it have to be one extreme or the other? Why, why are the Democrats pushing that agenda? I, I don't understand that. It's, it's not politically smart. No. I don't know what's happening. I honestly feel like this has been some, like, theater. I, like, and we're just all getting, like, punked. <laughs> Sad but true. You know? Like, I mean, it, as soon as Biden took office, he promised to be unifying. He promised to be moderate. And that was his appeal. None of that. Even on a congressional level. But that's right. why, thankfully, we still have reasonable people in Congress, like Steve, Ma- uh, Joe Manchin, Steve Manchin, don't know who that is, <laughs> um, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema as, like, Democrats, but who are reasonable people. Right. And I Thank do God. think that the majority of Americans are reasonable people. You know, I'd, I'd probably categorize myself as a little bit more, a little more to the right than center right, but not, like, way, way, way right. And I think most people are in the middle. And there are, I, I mean, I really do think that the entire way that we view politics and the, the party lines and what different agendas per each party stand for are going to change. Because I think a lot of people are not for full-term abortions. I think a lot of people see that Biden is incompetent is actually like, it's too nice of a word. And I want to be respectful because he is our president. But he's not there. I mean, he, everybody knows the guy is declining, declining Everybody hard. knows that. I agree. And I think everybody knows that, you know, China is a threat to kind of round out all of our topics of discussion. And it'll be interesting to see where people's opinions and views start redividing what the parties look like. But it's not going to go anywhere if Biden and the rest of the Democrat Party are continuing to demonize the Republican Party. And there, do you have any doubt that they will continue to do that? I don't. I think it's the only trick they know. Yeah. And, and when we say they, we've got to be careful who we're talking about. Whoever's calling the shots, whoever is calling those shots for Biden is committed to this radical agenda. And, and, yeah. and, and whoever they are, they are, they have friends high up in Congress. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is like this blob, you know, people can refer to it as the deep state or the establishment, but it's these Washington lifers, whether they're in Congress, whether they're lobbyists, whether they're part of big corporations who are all trying to push a certain agenda and pulling each lever to do it. Um, but no, to kind of just sum it up, um, I think that we as a country need to figure out common ground because I do think the majority of Americans probably think the same way and maybe have a little bit of differences in what their values are here and there. But at the end of the day, I do think that we have more common ground and similarities in what our values are as Americans. And that's why I wanted to start this podcast because there should be a way to have conversations whether or not we agree with each other. Well, good for you. Some, somebody needs to do it. I'm proud of you for being the one. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> I appreciate it. And I can't wait to hear what the other people say. Thank you. I'll let you know. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been Jane Marie Barnes with her dad, Bob Genevine. And this has been Wine and Politics. <laughs>